Liz Carpenter was a high-profile aide to President Lyndon Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird. She was born in Texas in 1920, came to Washington in 1942 as a reporter working for the Austin American Statesman. After her White House years, Liz Carpenter continued her career in D.C. as an activist, a political humorist, and a public relations expert. She died in 2010 at age 89. Here's an excerpt from an interview about her life recorded in October of 1994. You say uh, early in your book that by heritage and by profession, I am a storyteller. <laughs> where, where did you learn that? Well, I think growing up, I grew up in rural Texas. Rural areas seem to, you need entertainment. And so uh, my family had been rooted in Texas for five generations, and they were full of tales that had been hand-me-downs. And uh, we heard them a lot around the fireplace while you're cracking pecans. And uh, it grew then, of course, uh, I, I just was propelled to be a journalist, and that's what I did. I went to the University of Texas and came out and came to Washington when... Franklin Roosevelt was president uh, with my journalism degree in hand and my virtue intact, and I still have the journalism degree. <laughs> but it was, um, it just led naturally into seeing things as a story, a saga. The early, again in the book, you mentioned that when you came, at some point in your life, you actually were in the audience to see Will Rogers perform. Absolutely. And I know that it makes me feel like an artifact, but he came to the University of Texas. We went to see him for 50 cents, and he twirled his rope on the gymnasium stage and told stories about going to see the Franklin Roosevelt's. And uh, I remember that uh, he told about when he knocked at the door, imagine, after the time we've done in the, in the White House, but just a knock on the door, and Mrs. Roosevelt came, and he said, where is the president? And she said, wherever you hear the laugh. And, you know, that's a buoyant tribute to a man who was handicapped. In fact, I have a hard time not being so sentimental. I don't cry with it. But uh, I think it was the sense of, of fun in politics as well as purpose that we've lost too much of the spirit of humor in politics, I think. What years were you in the White House and what was your job? Well, the years I was in the White House, don't you remember? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, I, I was there from 1963, right following the assassination on November 22nd. I worked for President Johnson. I was in Dallas uh, that dreadful day and the moment that changed everyone's life. And I ended up back in Washington uh, on Air Force One. I wrote those 58 words that... Um, the president delivered when he stepped off the plane at Andrews Air Force Base. This is a sad time for all people and so forth. Um, and so then for five years, I worked at the White House as press secretary and staff director for Lady Bird Johnson and sometimes funny speechwriter for LBJ when he was willing to use my gags. How often do you think about those five years? Well, I they're part of you. They shaped you. They furnish a lot of uh, fodder for your for your folklore of of uh, politics. And I like to think about it and tell it. I think it was a very uh, yeasty time in this country, almost akin to the early New Deal days, because we worked 
very hard in the war on poverty while he was trying to um, subdue the war in Vietnam, which got a lot more attention. But it's when Head Start was born, the Job Corps was born, uh, when Lady Bird would go out to try to uh, inspire people to make this planet cleaner. Uh, we did a lot of raft rides in the West and uh, tried to lure some European dollars here. It was an exciting time of life for me. You know, you also mentioned early in the book um, about your early days here. Now, you came here in what year as a reporter? <laughs> Shortly after the earth cooled. I, was, <laughs> I came in 1942. I was 22 years old, very green but fresh from uh, the University of Texas. And I knocked on doors around the press building to get a job. And because it was wartime, uh, there were many more openings for women reporters than there'd ever been before. And I went to work for a small news bureau that was run by a terrific woman called the Duchess, Esther Van Wagener Tufty. We were on the ninth floor of the National Press Building. And I fell in love with Washington. And also, uh, it was such a easy thing. I mean, imagine being 22 years old and getting to go and cover Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Hill, the Hill and uh, all of the emerging lines like Speaker Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson were part of my life, part of my beat. You mentioned one thing and it's, it's, it comes up so often in books and I want you to talk a little bit about it. You say that uh, you were at the press table in the House caucus room to observe the confrontation, confrontation between Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers. Absolutely. How important an event was that, and why do so many people remember that? It was so dramatic, and it was one of the first uh, really high drama moments of, of confrontation. And um, uh, to be there, it was jammed, uh, it was um, televised, uh, it was just, um, everybody um, wanted to believe Alger Hiss and uh, not the Pumpkin Papers and Whitaker Chambers. I mean, Alger Hiss was a smooth, good-looking uh, public servant in the State Department, and uh, Whitaker Chambers kind of looked, you know, encumbered with tobacco juice and bad teeth. And um, he... Um, had worked for Time Magazine, but had not for a long time. And so there was mystery in it. It had a lot of the elements of Watergate later. And um, when um, uh, they, the Watergate burglars and the people who plotted it or talked about it or knew about it at the White House began to appear on the Hill. Did, did, did you think, I mean, did you, have you ever changed your mind on which one of those men were telling the truth? I, have, still I still don't know, and I'm, my inclinations are to think that Alger Hiss would not betray his country. You also mentioned that uh, you were in the press gallery when General MacArthur made his speech. High drama again. Uh, Les and I had a, a, the, a, one seat that we sat on together with that was right peering down over the House chamber, and remember, of course, that uh, General MacArthur had really headed out with Truman, and and uh, anyway, he had his day in uh, Congress. He made a uh, dramatic speech, and uh, then he started out of the chamber, and Mrs. MacArthur was seated uh, where normally the First Lady sits in that gallery, and uh, <laughs> and um, 
General MacArthur stopped dead still and looked up and blew her a kiss. And he had just said before he left the podium uh, that he remembered an old army barracks song. Old soldiers never die, they just fade away. Well, the guy sitting on the seat next to us said, Hamlet, next week, Hamlet. It was pure theater. And so much politics is theater, don't you think? You say you've known Mrs. Clinton for a long time? Well, I've known both of them. Uh, I've known the president since he was governor of Arkansas, and I went down to, to work on getting the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Um, and uh, Arkansas wasn't ripe for it. He was, but the state wasn't. Uh, I've known Ms. Clinton since she was on a White House um, fellows committee that I was chairman of for the Southwest, and she came to my home, and um, we were a group of us selecting White House fellow candidates from that part of the country. White House fellows started in Lyndon Johnson's time? Yes, and it, I think it proved to be a really good thing. They are banded together like, you know, uh, brothers and sisters now, and quite a few have gone on to be, well, Elizabeth Dole was, for instance, a White House fellow. Colin Powell? No, Elizabeth Dole. No, I said, but wasn't Colin Powell also and Tim Worth? I mean, trying to I think don't of... be- uh, No, maybe they were. Uh, but Tom Johnson uh, uh, was one, and... Uh, uh, you can find them scattered everywhere now, and they are all intently interested in public life, and that's a good thing. A quote from you. Uh, this is uh, one of your favorite uh, toasts from General Lafayette. Yes. Uh, to Washington, central star of the constellation, may it enlighten the whole world. Why do you, why do you uh, hold on to that toast? It's so much uh, a dream of ours to be an example of democracy. And uh, we fall short of it quite frequently. But I think when the general came back, and he came back on about uh, three ceremonial trips, and at the corner of I Street, uh, he lifted his glass and made it to the city of Washington. Uh, And we were a mud hole of a town then. Uh, This is in the 1700s. People might have laughed, and in fact, it took a long time for Great Britain to recognize us as a real uh, worthy country. But it was well expressed. And one time I was working on a toast for the president, and I used those lines in it because I think it was an underdeveloped country that was here at the time. And, well, it's good for us to remember we were once an underdeveloped country. You also have this quote from Alan Drury, um, the novelist. Uh, still a good friend. Still, still pouring out books. Is and he still here in town? No, he? he lives in California. I see him when I go out there. I think he's into about his 40th book. What was his most famous book? Advice and Consent. It still stands, I think, it's the best novel about this city. Quote, this is from Alan Drury, Washington, the great white marbled capital in which evil men do good things and good men do evil in a way of life only Americans can understand, and often they are baffled. Isn't that a fabulous quote? I wish I'd written it. <laughs> it, it uh, you could waltz to it. It's, uh, he had such a good description. He was a young reporter for the New York Times at Covering the Hill at that time. Let me read it again and have you pick it apart a little bit. Washington, the great white marble capital in which evil men do good things. You ever seen an evil man in this town do good things? I think probably. 
Andrew <laughs> Jackson might have been an evil man at some time. Um, no, no, we're not a flawless group of lawmakers. I mean, it, this evidence is there every day on page one. But I do think that um, there was, uh, well, Jefferson was a slaveholder, but Jefferson also wrote a fantastic uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, there are evils change, I guess, uh, but and and when, in which good men do evil and evil men do uh, do how how does the line go? Uh, good men do evil in a way of life only Americans can understand, and often they are baffled. I think we are baffled by it. I think that that we. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson picked up his dog by the ears. Well, a lot of people thought that was evil. He claimed that it made them healthy, but he also uh, had the guts to have a war on poverty. Uh, he was the author of most of the civil rights legislation. So uh, you cannot, we can't expect perfection, but gosh, we batter our presidents in a merciless way. The present one is certainly, uh, I've never seen as, as cruel a press as we have today. What's behind it? Um, well, I think, uh, who knows? Uh, we, I, I think some better assignments editors at radio and TV stations would help because there's too much focus on one story. That's where the cameras go, and they pick it to death. They pick a president to death. And all the time that he's struggling to uh, try to make peace in one part of the world, they're criticizing him in another. Um, the, it's, it's a merciless time in politics. And one of the things that I think is, uh, is evil is the growing number of what I call hired guns, the people who don't really have any intimacy or association by uh, birth or state with public figures and who are contracted for to come in and run focus groups and to run in and do polls. And I know that's very much a part of daily fare today. But whatever happened to your own friends, your own constituents for good judgment? Uh, because I see these people ride into uh, Texas and uh, they don't have a real feeling for the state or even the candidates' consideration. And I'm thinking of New Jersey, and I'm thinking of, um, well, both sides have them. And it's too bad because it means the parties themselves, the political parties, have lost power and idealism and hold. They are, are on their membership, and I, I can remember a Democratic Party and a Republican Party that, you know, were at loggerheads, but they had their own soul, and they had their own judgment, and uh, they were not just collection agencies for big money politics and for the hired guns. They were there for, uh, well, they had a Democratic Digest that took pieces of speeches, of ideas, of jokes. Um, you had a sense of joy in politics. You uh, talk about watching your book. You say, you write, these are your words, uh, beauty, intrigue, in-the-know conversations, the breathless wedding through a, a tight vote on Capitol Hill, the over-the-shrimp bowl gossip at 5 o'clock. Uh, if you were young and a reporter, there was no escaping the spell this great city of power and glory offered 
this uh, listing post for the world, this revolving door for heads of state, this democracy in which we all hold a sense of personal ownership. Was that hard to write? Not a bit. It just rolled out. And I, I was fresh from the White House at the time I wrote that. And there is where you felt the pomp and the ceremony of it and where you knew that this was the number one resident of the free world. And um, that you, it was a family that lived there. And it was, um, I have a very personal feeling about the White House. Uh, we entered under a very dark curtain of the death of, of President Kennedy. And uh, I'll never forget Mrs. Johnson, who was so good with words. And she said, when somebody asked how it felt to be in that house, history thunders down the corridors at you. It does, indeed. I remembered when Charles Lindbergh came back and the astronauts were there and how, uh, you know, I was in charge of setting up a picture of him with the astronauts because we thought they'd be thrilled to be photographed with Lindbergh and he hadn't been there since Hoover. And yes, when the cameras clicked and that flash went off, you could see him flinch visibly. And I knew that this was a man that really hated the spotlight. Um, I, I could remember, you know, great heads of state coming through there. And those wonderful um, two uh, Andrew Jackson uh, trees outside the windows, the two big magnolias. Uh, I had, could remember funny press conferences down on the first floor. I was press secretary, and, and there were about 85 women reporters, primarily women, who covered Mrs. Johnson, and I was trying to get them to go to the Big Bend out in West Texas. And um, so the more I would talk about the fact that you had to be careful of panthers and we would be riding rafts and so forth, the more people would sign up. They wanted adventure. They wanted to go on the trip. And sure enough, we ended up with about 85 rafts going down the Rio Grande River where you could almost reach Mexico on one side of the canyon and Texas on the other. And it was one of the most uh, delightful trips uh, that I've ever been on. Uh, and I think she loved it, and Stuart Udall was with us. He was Secretary of Interior. And I <laughs> called back to the White House, and, of course, the person who was always awake at any moment was President Johnson. In fact, there's a funny story about Wayne Hayes calling him one night. I mean, he calling Wayne Hayes, and, and he said to him at 1 a.m., Wayne, did I wake you? And Wayne Hayes said, no, Mr. President, I was just lying here waiting for you to call. Well... When I called the White House to find out how the story was being played, because there had been a lot of photographs of all of these rafts going down the river, um, and Mrs. Johnson and Secretary Udall, well, the only person I could get on the phone who had read the papers was LBJ, up early at them all. And I said, well, what is it like? And he was such a good reporter. He said, there's a four-column picture on the front of the New York Times in which uh, uh, Stuart Udall looks like Tonto and Lady Bird looks like the Lone Ranger she had on a Western hat. Well, I knew exactly what it looked like. But I think those are kind of the kind of... Um, it was the accessibility of the Johnsons to the public and to those of us who worked for them that really made you so willing to work long hours and still be at it. And it's amazing to me when we have a LBJ reunion 
which we do about every two years, as you know, uh, there's so many people who are still in public life, if not as um, uh, public servants or running for an office, but just being part of the process because we never got turned off of politics. We thought it was something that could be used, a tool that could be used to make life better for the folks. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 